Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. Here we are with part two of our Christmas extravaganza. Last time we went through kind of an overview of the Christmas story as presented in both Matthew and Luke. We talked about how there are both historical problems as well as contradictions between the two texts. Not only are the two stories contradictory, but the tone reveals that the stories aren't meant to be read together and it's impossible to harmonize them. Today, though, we're going to take a close look at the claims that Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew especially um, puts a very strong emphasis on this. So I thought we would dive in and take these prophecies kind of one at a time and then uh, deconstruct them and see if indeed the prophecies that Matthew lays out actually... um, fulfill what the Old Testament has to say. Okay, so the first prophecy that we are talking about is in Matthew 2, 6. Um, And the, the passage reads, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, in no way are you the least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is obviously a prophecy that has to do with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Um, or the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, at least as, uh, the way that Matthew is using it. Um, and it, it harkens back to Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel. And uh, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are the smallest of the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who is to rule in Israel. And the Second Samuel passage says, It is you, who will be shepherd of my people Israel. What Matthew did was he took the beginning part of the Micah passage um, and did a slight change um, in speaking about Bethlehem from the smallest clans of Judah to in no way are you the least among the leaders of Judah. Um, And then uh, takes the ending from the 2 Samuel passage. So in this one... He's just kind of combining two Old Testament um, passages. Now, this one, later on, we're going to get to things that Matthew uses, which are not even prophecies. Um, But this actually is a prophecy in Micah. In the Micah prophecy, it's minimizing Bethlehem as a place where um, it's considered the smallest of the clans of Judah. Um, and Matthew is emphasizing Bethlehem as not least among the leaders of Judah. So it's clearly a change in the original meaning to fit Matthew's purpose of highlighting Bethlehem as a place of importance for Jesus' birth. And then I also think it's interesting because Micah, the prophecy ends with he'll be one to rule in Israel, Um, but Matthew decided... In my opinion, it seemed like that would be too explicitly... um, I mean, Jesus didn't rule in Israel, right? So he chose shepherd of my people Israel uh, from the end of Samuel, which, like, fit very nicely and almost had, like, the same wording. Um, I think in order to uh, change Jesus' mission purpose as to be the shepherd rather than the ruler of Israel. Okay, so the author here is being kind of creative in his selection in order to um, make his point more clearly about Jesus. Yeah, now, because like his, he's doing some like 
you know, sort of historical apologetics because Jesus didn't actually get to rule. You know, he was like crucified. So instead he's swapping out ruler for shepherd. And then I guess Christians would say, well, he did rule, but in a more spiritual sense. Which would be odd because, again, like Matthew takes that part out. Um, so if that's the case, then why wouldn't Matthew just leave the entire original prophecy intact? Uh, it's just uh, interesting. So, Ben, I know you were um, posting some of these prophecies on Reddit in the uh, Christianity subreddit again. And um, I know you've had some back and forth on these. What, on this specific one, um, how has the conversation gone? I think this one was less controversial. Um, the fact that it it does seem like a an actual prophecy um, in Micah, um, you know, people did the the same type of thing. It's a prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So what I found about people on Reddit is they, in general, will avoid the actual issue that you're asking about. So. Um, if you want people to comment on the way that Matthew is using the Old Testament scripture or the way he changes the Old Testament scripture, what you're most likely to get is some sort of a justification for Old Testament uh, prophecies being either like obscure or hidden or the original authors not necessarily understanding them, but Matthew bringing some sort of a divine inspiration to being able to draw out these prophecies for the Messiah. That interpretation is problematic from my perspective um, because I think that the idea of Messianic prophecy is to be clear enough that when the Messiah comes, you can recognize the Messiah from those prophecies. And if they're obscure or unclear or you're changing the original prophecy to match the Messiah, I think that creates issues. Um, it was difficult to get um, the the Reddit uh, commenters to like draw that connection in their mind. Yeah, and I think they have a um, kind of a, a mountain to climb to uh, to solve these problems because a lot of them are just unsolvable. This next one um, is, I think, much more problematic. Yes. Okay. So prophecy number two is Matthew one twenty two to twenty four. And it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, quote, unquote, God with us. So here Matthew is drawing from Isaiah um, 714, which there's two different translations. There's the Hebrew and the Greek. So I'm going to read them both. The Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it says, look, the young woman is or will be pregnant and will, will have a son and she will name him Emmanuel. In the Greek translation, it says, look, the Parthenos will conceive and will have a son and you will name him Emmanuel. Parthenos is the Greek word for virgin or young woman. So when the Septuagint is translating the original... They come to this word in uh, Hebrew called um, Hal Alma, which is the young woman. And they translate it in Isaiah as the Parthenos. Matthew uh, looks at that and chooses the um, definition of virgin and then claims that this is a fulfillment. Jesus being born of a virgin is a fulfillment of a prophecy given in Isaiah seven fourteen. Now, you know I'm sure Ben can speak on this more thoroughly, but Isaiah seven fourteen is not a messianic prophecy. This is one of the most problematic um, things in the book of Matthew, in my opinion. Um, first of all, he's cherry picking his um, translation to best fit what he's trying to say. The best translation of Isaiah is simply talking about. Um, a young woman um, becoming pregnant, and and that's not a miraculous pregnancy. It's not a virgin birth in Isaiah seven fourteen. Yeah, it's like this has been the probably biggest controversy on Reddit, and I feel like it's again, it's trying to break through people's initial um, misconceptions or initial like defensiveness. So um, 
like you said, John, Alma means young woman. So that's the Hebrew. So you have the original story, Isaiah 7, in Hebrew, um, and the word used is Alma, which means young woman. So it's very simple. And, and clearly, in the context of Isaiah 7, it's talking about a young woman. It's a, prophet, it's a prophecy about the birth of a child that will be a sign um, about Israel's deliverance. Um, and that birth happens in the story, and it's and it, not it, a virgin it, birth, and it's not a messianic prophecy. I mean, no, did it's any, not messianic? It's, did, it's, did Jews before Jesus, before the New Testament era, did they look at Isaiah seven fourteen and read it as, oh, this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah? No, no, and, and it would be absurd to do that. It would be. I mean, again, the context is not about a uh, eventual Messiah coming to deliver. It's about a baby being born as a, a sign of deliverance, not necessarily the one that delivers. But uh, and that happens in the story of Isaiah in Isaiah seven. So the the prediction of the baby being born and the baby being born all happen in Isaiah. So it's not about Jesus. So. Um, and Jesus was never called Emmanuel. No one ever talks about that. Yeah, the only I place mean, he's called Emmanuel is here. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting um, reference that like is clearly not on a literal level, but is like again seems problematic if you're trying to fulfill this prophecy. There are like other Greek um, translations uh, from the time when Matthew's writing, besides the Septuagint, Greek translations of the Old Testament that translate the verb or translate the noun to be young woman um, and not the uh, not Parthenos. So clearly, making sure that the original intent would be clear. Uh, Matthew chooses a word that has multiple meanings um, that's not entirely clear. What I think is that Matthew is also not talking about a uh, virgin birth. He's talking about a virgin that will become pregnant, will conceive in the future. Um, and I think that Matthew's concern is that he knows that Joseph is not Mary's biological father. He wants to ensure that the birth is seen as controlled by God even if Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. Um, and so the virgin, she's a virgin and pure, will conceive is a message that the child will be uh, in like the favor of God. And the virgin is uh, any woman that will eventually become pregnant who was a virgin. So in Ma is Matthew teaching a virgin birth of Jesus? I think it's unlikely that he is, and I think that the main evidence for that is the um, the way he mentions the virgin birth and then just moves on and doesn't really um, do anything with it. If you have a virgin birth story in a narrative, it seems like you would emphasize that. Matthew seems to be uncomfortable even with the uh, concept and sort of just mentions it in passing. So we're going to talk later in Bible After Dark about... Um, some some criticisms in the um, in the ancient world that were were leveled at Christians and Jesus himself for basically being um, a bastard and being not from the lineage of David. So it is possible, um, as Ben suggests, that what Matthew is doing here is basically writing an apology for this, trying to answer those critics. And um, I'm not sure I would agree with Ben that says there is no. Uh, there, there likely is no virgin birth in Matthew. I think Matthew is talking about a miraculous virgin birth, and so is Luke. But I do think that it's an ultimately an apology trying to answer critics at that time who were accusing Jesus of coming from an illegitimate um, background. Yeah, I think one of the other things that people have brought up on Reddit is that... Um, you know, Matthew just got the translation wrong. He thought that it was talking about a virgin. He read Parthenos in the Greek Septuagint, and he was legitimately confused. That, for me, is problematic because Isaiah 7 is not talking about a virgin birth. So if Matthew legitimately thought that Isaiah 7 was a virgin birth, either Matthew was wrong about Isaiah 7, 
Or we have two virgin births in the Bible. We have one in Isaiah 7, and we have one in the virgin birth that we attribute to the Gospels. So I think that it's perfectly clear from the context of Isaiah 7 that it is not talking about a virgin, it's talking about a young woman. And that Matthew made a conscious choice to translate it in a way that was obscure. And again, I think it was to emphasize Mary's purity in the face of like these uh, scandalous accusations. And we're going to talk a little bit also about um, other prophecies that Matthew uses later in his gospel that are not related to the Christmas story at all. But Matthew, uh, I don't know how to say it other than he's, I guess, very liberally using the Old Testament. It almost seems like he's going through and anything that to him strikes him as an allusion to Jesus, even if it's not a messianic prophecy or a prophecy at all, um, he will just kind of use it and, you know, use either the Hebrew or the Greek or combine them both in order to make everything that Jesus does a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Well, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking about here is, and you guys should correct me if I'm wrong, but it was my understanding that these gospels were like oral tradition, you know, for many years before they were written down. And so I guess I'm just thinking about like, is it whoever finally wrote down Matthew that is like, you know, grasping in all of these straws? Or were all of these different things just like sort of combined together as this gospel was like passed down? like among communities as part of an oral tradition practice. Yeah, I think that's that what you just said is the is the key question. I mean, I think the whole endeavor of um, New Testament scholarship is trying to answer that question you just said. Um, with the birth narratives, I'll say this, that most of Matthew is word for word identical to Mark. Um, Matthew basically took Mark and it's it's hypothesized that he took a sayings gospel that they call Q and that he combined those two together and like added his own touch. Like he added a lot of these prophecies and he added a lot of sayings and he added some exaggerating details uh, at the resurrection, for instance. And um, so, but the interesting thing is we don't have any evidence of birth narratives of Jesus anywhere other than Matthew and Luke, which is, which is one of the most interesting things because Matthew and Luke agree with each other you know, I don't know, 90-something percent of the time they're like word-for-word word identical, again, because they're using, they're both using Mark as their source. But, but, but Mark has no birth narrative, and Mark also doesn't have resurrection appearances. So what happens is that's where you really see differences, is where um, Matthew and Luke uh, are trying to construct a story where they don't have the reference of Mark, and they're completely different. So Matthew and Luke completely agree with each other, except when you're talking about the birth of Jesus, because there was no birth of Jesus in Mark. And all of a sudden, you have two completely differing um, and contradictory stories. So I think that is some evidence to say that um, certainly there was a an aspect of an oral tradition. But these books were were not, despite what many you know you know atheists will will say that all oh, these gospels were written, you know, centuries later. That's not true. I mean, Mark was written, um, even by a late estimate of Mark, it was written in about 70 AD, which is only just a few decades after the life of the historical Jesus. So it's not like there was a huge amount of time for um, an oral tradition to develop. So at some point, um, I my opinion is this is much more based on um, original documents than it is some kind of oral history. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point because we do have um, part of what we do in um, in New Testament scholarship is like examine and look for sourcing. It's tough. Like the um, we don't have any other like John just said, we don't have any other historical sources for the birth of Jesus, and we don't have any other um even gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. And it seems like um we talked last episode about some of the common elements in Mark and Luke. So there were probably these common elements that were part of oral tradition. You know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, Jesus wasn't the biological son of Joseph. Um, somehow the Holy Spirit was, uh, involved in the pregnancy. Um, 
Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Um, so these like common elements, but then the interesting thing is the elements are, are used in totally different ways in each account. So it's clear that there was like some guesswork going on in Matthew and Luke and how they filled in these details. And since we know that they had Mark and we know that they had um, or speculate uh, and hypothesize that they had Q, which covers the uh, material that they have together. Um, I'm not sure that I think that these sources were based on any like historical information or were more um, fictions to solve problems um, in during the time of um, Mark and Luke's gospel. I think that's really the reason for these birth narratives. So, I mean, there is a tradition called the Moses Hagda. I think that's how you pronounce it, but it's where there was kind of a creative retelling of the birth of Moses. And um, and they would tell it in very different ways, and they would actually change um, details from what you read in the Old Testament, and it was completely acceptable. Um, and it was almost like this tradition to write these creative accounts, and many people believe that um, the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke are basically a version of that. They were They were just taking on that same tradition um, and re- kind of like writing their own version of it. I will say that the first reference we have to the birth of Jesus is actually in Paul, but all Paul says about, and you know, he was writing probably a couple decades before the Gospels were written, so again, very early, but he just says Jesus was born of a woman and born under the law. So if Paul knew something about the virgin birth, he doesn't say it, and there's no other mention of any miraculous birth or anything like that. But we've only gone through two. Well, why don't we move on to the third one? I guess I'll read this one. This is for, comes from Matthew 2, 17 through 18. Verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So this didn't create as much uh, controversy on Reddit, but I also think that this uh, passage just shows um, the misuse of the um, Hebrew Bible by Matthew. I mean, so the Jeremiah passage uh, that he's quoting is Jeremiah 31, 5 through 7. Um, and it's basically at the hypothetical gravesite of uh, uh, Raquel or, or Rachel. Um, and, uh, there were two traditions, one that has her grave in Bethlehem. Um, this is the one that Matthew is, uh, identifying with and hypothetical, uh, Rachel is weeping for her children, Israel, who have been lost. It's basically, um, imagined prayer for their eventual return from disobedience. And it's a hopeful cry um, in uh, for eventual redemption by Israel in um, the Jeremiah passage. In the Matthew passage, it's not a hopeful cry. It's not uh, tears uh, for the children that will be returned. It's tears for children that were just slaughtered that will never be returned. Yeah, I mean, in Jeremiah, it's not a prophecy. The only thing you could interpret as a prophecy is that you shall have hope that they will return. But in um, this is talking about the slaughter of the innocents. Yeah, it's not a prophecy about a future uh, catastrophe falling on Israel. It's a prophecy about, it's not a prophecy, it's about something happening in the past that uh, Raquel is weeping for, um, but under the hopes that Israel will eventually be restored and returned. Right, so it's really creative, um, it's a creative leap to connect this. Yeah, and it's, if if it didn't have to do with I mean, again, it, there's no reason to believe that this passage in Jeremiah is speaking about the slaughter of the innocents. There's nothing there that indicates it's talking about some future event. It's talking about Raquel crying for her children. The children are Israel. Um, and it's clear from the context that she's crying about a past event. So the next one is from Matthew um, 2.15. And it uh, says, There they remained until Herod's death in order to fulfill the prediction of the Lord through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. So, 
Um, and this is a quote of Hosea 11.1. 1. Um, and the larger context is Hosea 11.1 1 through 7. The Hosea passage says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. The more I called them, the further they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incest to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I held them in my arms. They did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bonds of love. I was like to them those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are determined to turn away from me. It's the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. So, looking at that Hosea passage, doesn't really seem to be talking about the Messiah. Yeah, Ben, I always thought that it was um, it was really saying, out of Egypt I called my children. He's, he's calling, the in Hosea, he's calling the people of Israel. Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, it literally, the uh, my son singular switches to plural in the next verse, which is why Matthew quoted only that verse and only that part of the verse. Um, in the beginning of one, it says, Israel was a child, I loved him, and when I called my son out of Egypt. So my son is talking about Egypt, or my son is talking about Israel, I'm sorry, um, and calling Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. So they left a place where they were oppressed and enslaved um, to a place of freedom outside of Egypt. Well, that's not what's happening in Matthew. In Matthew, Egypt is the place of sanctuary and safety. Right. And he's being called out of Egypt as he goes back to assumably start his public ministry in Galilee. Um, so two totally different contexts, clearly not talking about um, calling someone out of Egypt for safety, but then all of the other... Um, things in Hosea uh, don't apply to Jesus, apparently. So um, going further and further away from God, sacrificing to the idols of Baal, offering incense to them. Um, uh, let's see. Um, they shall return to the land of Egypt. Why, doesn't there, why isn't there something about Jesus returning to the land of Egypt? Well, he never returned to the land of Egypt. Also, it's um, just very clear in these verses that this is like God trying to cajole a whole people who aren't doing what he wants into doing what he wants. And like, that's not the relationship that he had with Jesus at all. Like, you know, it, it's like he's just in Hosea. It's just like he's resentful. He's like, I taught Ephraim how to walk. I held them in my arms, you know, and then like. And now, because, and then jump to verse six, and it's like, the sword is raging in their cities. And it's like, the, the subtext is very clear, like, this bad stuff is happening to them because they have refused to return to me. And, like, Jesus and God never had that relationship in Jesus's time on earth because he was part of God, you know, if you follow the logic of the rest of the Bible. Yeah, that was a great point, Katie. I think that... um when you look at these prophecies, like the the things that people say are Jesus is Israel in the prophecy. Well, okay, that does not solve the problem. The problem is Israel in this prophecy, prophecy quote-unquote, Israel in this passage in Hosea, like, is not doing stuff that Jesus did, except for going out of Egypt. None of the stuff is stuff that Jesus did. So if you take one verse out of context— that seems to have something to do, again, and divorcing it from its context gives it a different meaning that can fit with what Jesus did, then that's a prophecy according to Matthew. We would not use that type of a exegetical standard to find prophecy today. You wouldn't go into the Bible and say, oh, I can find a part of one sentence that I think has to do with something, and that's a prophecy about that thing. That's just not good scholarship. That's not good um, hermeneutics. So it's weird that we allow Matthew to, to just violate all these rules that we've been taught about how to understand a text, how to get meaning from the text. Um, he's allowed to just change meaning and take things out of context and use scripture in ways that we would say are totally inappropriate in our time. 
Yeah, I mean, and if it's validating a methodology of studying the Bible where you basically can just pull out any phrase that um, that can, in any stretch of the imagination, like back up whatever argument you want to make, well, okay, but I mean, that's a that's a pretty radical uh, thing to propose because in that case, you can pretty much make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. As far as, um, you know, taking it out of context, that's the number one criticism that um, apologists make against skeptics. They say, oh, well, you're just taking that verse out of context. And then they want you to go through this massive, in-depth, like, um, theological study to understand that what it seems to be saying in plain English on the surface is not at all what it means. Um, You know, if you go through our series on... uh, Bible blunders and um, and inerrancy, you'll find that um, we talk a lot about the you know splits in the church for these reasons. Well, this this church, this denomination believes that one is taking it out of context. But if we just follow Matthew's pattern here, we can just take anything however we want to take it. Yeah, I mean, I am inspired to go back into the Old Testament and find some passages that I can use to show as prophecies for the legalization of gay marriage. That's right. And you could absolutely do that. Yeah, this is this is great. This is a very liberating new form of hermeneutics that is like <laughs> approved by God because the Bible is God's word. So these hermeneutics are God's process. Yeah, it's sad. I made a joke when it came to this prophecy on Reddit about um, maybe this is about the Arab Spring. I mean, after all, that started in Egypt and then spread um, out of Egypt, right? So that's the way that we're allowed to do this uh, interpretation. And somebody was like, I don't know that much about the Arab Spring. Uh, You'd probably need to ask someone else about that. I'm like, ah, you missed the point. (laughs) You missed the whole point. Like, you can't do that. Like, clearly it's not talking about the Arab Spring. That would make no sense. Um, so it's, it, it's just not something, yeah, like this is what they do to criticize, um, the supposed false teachers of today is that they're just taking things out of context, that they're drawing their own conclusions. Um, this is not the way that we've been taught to read the Bible or, um, use the Bible. I also think it should be noted that it almost seems here like Matthew is constructing a story just to get to this prophecy. I mean, he has Jesus like going to Egypt and then coming back in, likely just to fulfill this quote unquote prophecy. Um, so, again, he's really going out of his way to, it's almost like the main goal of Matthew in his gospel. And this is, by the way, even what, uh, you know, Christian scholars will say, or, or um, even apologists will say, yeah, Matthew, his goal is to connect Jesus to. Um, to the Old Testament um, prophecies of the Messiah. But I think what we're just saying is he's doing it in kind of ridiculous ways that um, nobody would ever on the surface read these Old Testament passages and look at them as being messianic prophecies at all. Some of them they are, and some of them not. And then the context that Matthew uses is pretty ridiculous. I wanted to highlight one other um, prophecy that's not on our list of five today that later in the Gospel of Matthew... Um, when he has Jesus um, returning to Jerusalem on a donkey. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is riding, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. But in Matthew, it says he came in on a donkey and on the offspring of a donkey. And on them he sat. He's literally riding in on two donkeys. Sitting, He has Jesus sitting on two donkeys. And it sounds kind of ridiculous, except when you go back to Zechariah, which Matthew is saying is that Jesus riding on those donkeys is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah, where it says, Behold, your king is uh, coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey, even the the foal of a donkey, which is the offspring of a donkey. So it's saying, like, not only is he riding on a donkey, he's riding on the foal of a donkey. It's like even, even less status. But the Septuagint translates that as and, or it could be translated as and. So when Matthew looks at it, he mistranslates it and then literally has Jesus riding in on two donkeys. So this is just another example of how flexible Matthew is. I was asking Ben earlier, like, what would, I'm I'm just really eager to find out, like, what would 
ancient Pharisees, like in, in rabbis in the time of Jesus, what would they have said if they read Matthew's prophecies? Yeah, I think that Matthew was faced with a real dilemma. Um, Matthew wanted to write a gospel for the Jews to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But he had a bunch of Messianic passages in the Old Testament that Jesus did not fulfill. So what to do? And I think this was a task that early Christianity um, tried to do, um, and you can see it in other places. But you scour the Old Testament for things that sound like they're about Jesus. So Matthew found anything that he could that he thought were prophecies or that he thought could be prophecies and helped Jesus fulfill those prophecies by either creating a narrative or fitting it into some story that he had, um, having some sort of a specific detail. So these prophecies would be fulfilled. Now, the problem for early Pharisees um, and the problem for us today is that when we look, we see that Matthew, the way that he's using the Old Testament to um, find these prophecies is very cynical and dishonest. Um, now, that's not to say that Matthew couldn't have genuinely believed that these were some sort of prophecies or these were some sort of hidden um, uh, hidden details about Jesus that were in the uh, the Hebrew uh, Bible, um, and so genuinely was trying to bring those out. But I think that the way that it's used in a polemical sense is very cynical. Okay, so our final prophecy is Matthew two twenty two, um, and this is from the New International Version. It says, "And he went." Sorry, 2.23. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So this is another instance of a lot of words kind of getting smushed around across translations. Um, so if we assume that Matthew heard in Nazarene the echoes of Nazarite and then Isaiah's messianic David branch, Netzer, we are still left to come up with, like, we, we still have to figure out how he came up with the phrase, he will be called a Nazarene. Um, so let's dig back into this text. So in Isaiah 11.1, 1, we see Netzer used. And so Netzer means branch. And the prophecy in question here is about the Davidic king who will be next on the throne. So Again, next on the throne, not in a few hundred years. Um, it says, Isaiah 11.1, 1, A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, Netzer, will spring from his roots. Um, later on, Jewish interpretation started to apply Isaiah 11.1 1 to the future Messiah. But the very next line in Isaiah reads, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And so that might have reminded Matthew of Jesus's baptism if you look back at Matthew 3.16. So that's the Netzer situation. Again, it's a branch. Um, and initially, it like its initial meaning in, in context is, is about who's going to be next on the throne um, in the Davidic line. Then if we go into... Um, Numbers 6, 1 through 21, we see the history of the term Nazir. Um, so this is this became adopted into English as Nazarite, and it means someone consecrated to the service of God by a special vow. Um, and the public signs of Nazarite consecration include abstaining from alcohol and never cutting or shaving your hair. Uh, so take a second, think about who might be the most famous Nazarite. Samson, um, whose strength comes from his long hair, and it's a sign of his dedication to God. So these are kind of similar. Like, yes, I guess we would want the next person, you know, the next king of Israel to be consecrated to the service of God by a special vow. But they're not really the same thing. And they also don't explain how we get up, like get to Matthew saying like, oh, he's going to be a Nazarene. There is actually no prophecy um, that says he will be called a Nazarene. 
um, you have to do what you just said and 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 talk about the numbers um, use of the word Nazarite. So yes, maybe Matthew is confused, but the problem is he's specifically talking about someone coming from Nazareth. He's not talking about you know the um, abstaining from alcohol and never shaving. Um, and co- someone being consecrated to the service of God. And like you said, and this is how, and I, you know, we can ask Ben about this because I know he was going back and forth with people on Reddit. And I know that is how they answer it. They'll say, oh, well, it has to do with, um, you know, Jesus being consecrated by a vow. The problem is it's not talking about that. It's talking about coming from Nazareth. And it's saying he, Jesus resided in a land called Nazareth, and that fulfilled the prophecy that he will be called a Nazarene. <laughs> and, um, Unless and there are some Christians that say, "Oh, well, th- this was a prophecy that's been lost to history." I've heard I've heard that argument before. There must have been a uh, a prophecy that said that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Um, so you either get that answer or you get this other answer about the numbers um, the numbers uh, prophecy. I mean, the numbers use of the word Nazarite. But yeah, I mean, to me, this is one of the most problematic ones of all the ones we've gone through. Yeah, it's funny. It's almost like people have to play Matthew with this passage and go back and try to figure out what the hell he's talking about uh, when it comes to the Old Testament. So in the same way Matthew was scouring the Old Testament to look for passages about Jesus, um, Christians who read this passage have to scour the Old Testament to see what Matthew's talking about. So, yeah, Katie laid it out great. it's a problem because it's not a prophecy. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. Um, and so what people do is they'll say, well, it has to do with uh, Nazar, and it's the branch of Jesse, and it's about Jesus being, like, restoring Israel. Okay, that's great. That's not what Matthew's saying. Matthew's saying the prophecy is Jesus will live in Nazareth. So maybe the word reminded um, Matthew of uh, Nazar, and he's making an illusion. That could be true too, but that doesn't solve the basic problem that Matthew was saying. This prophecy about Jesus living in Nazareth proves that he's the Messiah because the prophet said that. Okay, that's not true. The second thing is the Netzer. So Netzer is the other thing that they think. Okay, this brought to mind Netzer in uh, Matthew's mind. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the that's the branch. Um, the Nazar is Nazarite, which is the consecration by God. But it's the, it's the same thing. It's if you're consecrated by God, that's not what the passage is talking about. The passage is talking about, like John said, settling in Nazareth. And this is the thing that people were unwilling to recognize in the Reddit discussion. Like, you can have allusions to the Old Testament. You can have... If you really want to stretch, you can make some sort of a claim that there's a hidden um, prophecy about Jesus contained in Nazar and Netzer. I think that that's not the case. I don't think that um, unless you do the sort of combination that Matthew's done, that you would clearly think that they're talking about Jesus. Um, I think that the passages are talking about their self-referential and that they're talking about things that are happening in the context of the passages. But assuming that you take those deeper meanings for Nazar and Netzer, it still doesn't solve the basic problem of the, the Matthew is not saying Jesus fulfills prophecy because he identifies with these Old Testament concepts. He's consecrated to God. He's from the house of Jesse. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's already said Jesus is from the house of David. What he's saying now is Jesus fulfills prophecy because he lives in Nazareth. So I don't see how you get around that. It's a bad use of um, Scripture on Matthew's part. It uh, is claiming a prophecy is there where there's no prophecy. It's combining two concepts in the Old Testament to create a word that they don't reference and that is never referenced. Um, Just to comment on um, what John said about uh, the passage being lost to history, it's just strange that... um, the all-powerful sovereign God of the universe um, who can protect the inerrant original text of Scripture didn't see fit to have us hold on to this important Old Testament prophecy that would be referenced in um, referenced uh, to his son in Matthew. 
Um, that seems strange to me, but okay. So we we say, I guess he's not protecting all of Scripture, just the really important stuff. Um, not prophecies having to do with the Son being the Messiah, but only other important stuff. It's faith, Ben. Yeah, yeah. So, but again, I don't think that that ultimately, well, I mean, that might solve the problem. Um, but then it belittles all this other scholarship that has to do with Nazar and Netzer, which seems to be like actually what Matthew is trying to do. Um, so part of what I wanted to tell people on Reddit is, yeah, you're right. He is making an allusion to the Old Testament. Yeah, he is trying to draw out these themes. But he's also claiming that Jesus goes to Nazareth because it's a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And that is the problematic claim. Yeah. yeah, you would be taking um, Matthew so far out of context to say that he shall be called a Nazarene has nothing to do with Jesus settling in Nazareth. It's, it would be absurd. Yeah, I'm also just having a moment of like, like kind of like grief because I feel like we're missing the forest for the trees here because I'm just thinking about, and again, this is based in my own experience of Christianity and the denomination like that I grew up in. But like there is so much ink spilled in commentaries, in Reddit comments, in these discussions that are like so focused on trying to establish the Bible as God's word and God is omnipotent and omniscient. And like all of that is setting, you know, the foundation for then being able to like point to specific things in the Bible and say, see, like all of this is very true and therefore we should be living like this, you know? And like men, like uh, women should be like subordinate to men and like being gay is evil. And it's just like this foundation is just set up to point to those things. And it's like very heartbreaking to me because it's like even if you are just reading the Gospels, like Jesus is saying a lot of things that are legitimately like valid good advice for how to treat other people and exist as a human being you know we could just as easily be pointing to wow we should make sure that sex workers are safe and we should make sure that homeless people have a roof over their heads and that they're taken care of you know like but that is not where this sort of like arsenal that like a lot of contemporary Christianity builds, you know, this like foundational arsenal of like the Bible is true and like God is all powerful and Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Like that never gets pointed in the direction of let's create a society that is like just and fair and equitable where we're taking care of one another. It gets pointed in in like these other directions. So I know this isn't new, but I'm just like, no, that's think- coming up for me right now. No, I I totally get it. I think in our last discussion about capitalism, we talked about like the primary like teaching um, throughout the entire Bible is really about helping the poor and the fact like Jesus basically says like you can't even go to heaven unless you sell everything you have and give to the poor. Clearly, it was a huge um, emphasis put, but you don't hear that emphasis very much at all from evangelical Christians, and they focus on. Um, a lot of things that Jesus did not talk much about or talk about at all. And like you said, they get very um, in-depth in with theology or um, or outright just twisting the Bible. I mean, there were, I heard a, a family member of mine talking about a sermon recently in their church where they were supporting um, the Second Amendment. And it was like a, it was like a pro-gun sermon. And um, man, did, did, would you have to do some real gymnastics uh, to make the Bible, um, you know, pro like gun ownership for everybody? Um, but that's what they did. And my whole point is like, yeah, if everybody cherry, like first get people to admit that they're cherry picking. Like, are you cherry picking the Bible? Like they, they'll deny it, but they are because everybody's cherry picking the Bible because it's, the Bible's not speaking in one harmonious voice. So if you are going to cherry pick the Bible, um, why not cherry pick the good stuff? Like, like, like you said, all the things about helping like our fellow man. And, um, like you said, there is like, this show is definitely not saying that the Bible is all bad. There is lots and lots of really good stuff in it. 
Um, this is why we're interested in it. Um, I think what we're advocating for is just having a little bit more enlightened view of the history of the Bible and how we got the Bible, and to be skeptical of the claims that we hear every day from evangelicals and pastors um, around the world. Yeah, I think, Katie, you put it really um, perfectly. Like, the problem is, so throughout history, there's been an emphasis on... um, And I think we should just be clear, like, as we look at history, there's been an emphasis on different parts of Scripture as they serve specific purposes in society. And I think, like, today we need to reevaluate what um, Scriptures are really the ones that should be speaking to us today. If you want to draw something from the Bible, I don't think that it's the um, ancient view of science. I don't think that it's the sort of, like, cultural prejudices I don't think that it's an idea that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, um, but that the Jewish people of his time were so stupid or blinded or evil that they couldn't see that he was fulfilling clear prophecy about the Messiah. I think all of those ideas are problematic, and I think that we should find new ways of trying to read the Bible that are not regressive but are more progressive, so ways that emphasize our love and common humanity, ways that emphasize, um, like, a gender fluidity instead of a gender binary. I just think these are like ways that we should try to read the Bible now. And the stuff that doesn't fit with that conception, um, sort of like John says, we should read a little bit selectively, um, I think, um, and look for the good rather than the really regressive and the bad. That's not traditionally what historically has happened. And then I think it's also what you said is really smart because what people do when they try to make Um, this passage in Matthew align with the Old Testament passages or the passages in the Hebrew Bible is that they end up butchering Scripture. Like in one place or the other, they butcher the meaning of what the Scripture is saying, which is not the way that we should be reading Scripture. So if you have this view that um, the Bible is without error or is perfect or is um, a literal truth, then you end up like having these passages that clearly don't align. I mean, we find this in the contradictions that we talk about, but you find that in these like alleged prophecies, um, you just create huge problems for yourself because you have to have one of the texts being literal and exact, and then the other one has to be stretched in meaning to where it doesn't resemble what the original text is saying anymore. Yeah, it also makes me think of how like scholars like John Dominic Crisson point out how like, you know, pretty early on, Christianity was co-opted by the Roman Empire. So Christians went from being a very oppressed, marginalized group of people to now, like, their now official religion being used to perpetuate oppression and domination. And, yeah, I'm just thinking about how, like, that's still happening you know, I think sometimes when when people like read about that history of early Christianity, they're like, you know, taken aback. They're like, this is like so messed up that the Roman Empire like was so hypocritical and they went from persecuting these people to then realizing it was like politically advantageous to take over their religion. And it's like, well, that's still happening. Like, look at Trump's presidency in 20, you know, his, his campaign the, the last time, you know, how suddenly he was a Christian and like, he didn't believe in abortion anymore, even though the year before he had been like, yeah, abortion's fine, whatever. So I just think sometimes we think like all of that happened in the past, but a lot of those same dynamics are still happening right now. Yeah, I also think there's like an uncomfortable, this is slightly off topic, but there's also like a, a subtle there's subtle movements even in the um, the Gospels and the Christian texts when it comes to like dealing with power. There was a time when the church was reading these early texts from a perspective of oppressed people. And when that switched, they decided to read these texts in a completely different way. And um, it creates a lot of problems for these, uh, these sources or these stories, like the story of Jesus telling the rich man, sell all your belongings and give to the poor. Um, because at one point they were the poor believers and now I don't think that they are the poor believers. And that's why you see, like, even in this day, the way that Glenn Beck characterizes liberation theology, like he's reading scripture from the point of someone in power. So when he's thinking of 
like oppression in scripture. It's by his crazy standard of oppression where it's like a drag queen does a uh, show for at a library and that's somehow oppressing Glenn Beck. That's not like a biblical idea of oppression. That's not like the people that the Bible was speaking to. Like the way that we read the Bible now is not the same way that oppressed Christians would read it early on. Um, and like John says, like the way a patriarchal male will read the Bible is not the way like a feminist will read the Bible. So it's always important to like uh, be able to um, gauge your perspective um, and try to read the text or read the text with people that will bring a different perspective um, or read about a different perspective on the text. Because sometimes I think that brings out meanings um, that we miss because of our blind spots. Yeah, I really like that. And now, the Bible. After Dark. So, our, the Bible After Dark uh, comes actually from outside of the uh, canon. Um, but it has to do with Christmas, and it's the early Christian scandal of who was Jesus' father. Um, and there were actually two um, complementary uh, slanders that were going on. Um, one from second century Roman philosopher Celsus, Celsus, and in the Babylonian Talmud in the seventh century Iraq, um, it repeats a very similar, um, allegation that Jesus was actually not born of a virgin. Um, he was born of a rape of Mary, um, at the hands of a Roman soldier named Ben Pandera or Ben Panter um, or Panthera, depending on uh, which uh, version you read. Origen, the early church father, uh, Origen actually repeated the Celsius claims, um, and this is around AD 178. So not about maybe, well, probably 100 years after Matthew wrote their gospel, um, and maybe 110 after Mark wrote the first gospel, um, Celsus is uh, reported to be making these claims that Jesus is actually the product of um, a sexual encounter with a Roman soldier. So what's interesting, I mean, this is obviously not coming directly from the Bible, but the way the reason it relates is it's very possible that um, these type of criticisms were going on in the time of Jesus, which is why we have the birth narratives, is kind of a way to answer this uh, criticism that, wait a second, um, Jesus was born outside of wedlock. So it's very possible that these criticisms really do go back to the time of the historical Jesus. Also, it's interesting that we don't actually have the words of Celsus. We have um, what Origen is kind of responding to. So uh, we kind of have to take that into account as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's not that these should be taken historically um, by any stretch, but I think that what it does speak to, um, and this is a, a theme I think we keep harping on, is that a lot of times what these texts really tell us is about something historical that's going on at the time these texts were writing or were written. And I think that um, we can speculate that there was a lot of controversy about Jesus's birth and his patronage. Um, there were, like we said, the stories in Luke and Matthew, um, part of what they're trying to address is the fact that people knew that Joseph wasn't Jesus's biological father that Mary was pregnant during the betrothal. Um, and so um, Celsus has um, Jewish critics of Christianity making these claims that Jesus is the product of um, some sort of a, um, sexual encounter uh, with a Roman soldier. Um, and this is like super um, scandalous because the Romans obviously are the, the villains um, during this time period. And the fact that um, the alleged uh, Messiah of Christianity would be the product of some sort of a union with the hated Roman soldier um, is a very scandalous charge. Um, but if you don't have birth narratives and you don't have a history of um, Jesus's patronage and you don't have genealogies to um, trace him um, back through Joseph's line to David, then the, that's how these scandals start to erupt. And uh, I think that the Christian Gospels were part 
um, the birth narratives were in part to answer um, maybe not these specific criticisms, but um, criticisms like this about um, who Jesus' father, father was. What I think is interesting is that a lot of Christians now will look at um, any secondary account of Jesus. They'll go to Josephus and Tacitus, and they'll make claims that, uh, and we're, we're not going to get into that as to how, um, you know, if, if Jesus is actually, the historical Jesus is referenced and how um, reliable that is. But if you are going to use that type of um, logic, then you have to put Celsus in too, because Celsus mentions Jesus, and he talks about a historical factoid about Jesus, and um, it's not a, uh, it doesn't support uh, what the Bible gives us, so you never really hear about it from um, evangelicals or apologists, but actually, by that logic, if we're looking at like what ancient sources said about Jesus, well, one ancient source said that Jesus was a bastard, and it goes back very early. I mean, this is... um, like, like Ben said, like maybe a hundred years after the Gospels were written, um, that's very early, and it, it, it probably means that there were rumors of this that go back all the way to the historical Jesus. We're not making any claim as to how valid or invalid it is, but it's interesting that if you use that, um, that same methodology of, of trying to uh, verify the facts of the Bible, well, you would have to take this pretty seriously also. It's also kind of interesting that the um, Celsus and Babylonian Talmud accounts like mention Jesus being trained in um, magic from Egypt. So they have that element that aligns. Again, if you're just going to like pick and choose any source that seems to justify um, an aspect of the biblical narrative, well, there's an aspect of the biblical birth narrative from Matthew, Jesus growing up in Egypt um, and coming back with the traditions of magic um, from Egypt that he used to do his miracles. Now, Christians would totally reject that idea because this source also claims that Jesus is the product of um, some sort of an illegitimate um, union with Mary and a Roman soldier. Um so again, it's not just that you can search for any historical um, attestation and assume that it's uh, it actually aligns with something historical. I think that uh, it's good to evaluate the sources, and you should use that same standard for a source that seems to um, justify what you're trying to prove, and a, and a source that's casting down on what you're trying to prove or or what you're looking at. Um, I think that's just the way to uh, be honest about the sources you're looking at. I mean, what this definitely shows us, though, is that there was a controversy surrounding the lineage of Jesus and, and um, who his parents were. And so it kind of makes sense. If that controversy was around and the early father followers of Jesus were trying to answer that question, it really does make sense why you see these birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. And it also makes sense how it was answered in other places in the Bible. So in Hebrews, like I mentioned in the last episode, it answers the question in a very different way. It basically says, no, the Messiah doesn't have to come from the line of David. Um, And it uses the reference of Melchizedek uh, as an example. And then in the Gospel of John, you have people accusing Jesus, hey, you're not from Bethlehem. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't go on to say, actually, I am from Bethlehem. So I think that like, it's very interesting to see that, um, you know, when we're asking the question of why were the gospel, why were the gospels written, um, and why the birth narratives more specifically are written, um, it's to answer some of these criticisms very likely, and I think the Celsus quote is an example of that. Yeah, I think the best way to interpret the birth narratives were that it was an attempt by early Christianity to um, take elements that they knew of um, Jesus's early life and formulate a narrative to make sense of those elements. And I think that Matthew and Luke did it in totally different ways. And I think that um, it's totally appropriate to think that they're answering charges and questions about uh, the birth of Jesus and trying to answer the critics in, in how they formulate these narratives. And Matthew is trying to say... Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, Jesus's birth uh, had a divine aspect where um, God was watching it, even though it doesn't, even though he wasn't the biological son of Joseph. 
Um, the Holy Spirit is a uh, part of Jesus' pregnancy, and also that Jesus fulfills prophecy, and he's the Messiah. And so he formulates a narrative in order to uh, make those two points. Um, Luke has a similar um, a similar narrative to solve the controversy around the birth and patronage, and then he's got to get them to Bethlehem, and so he connects them to a survey, uh, a census that happened um, in in uh, in recent uh, memory, um, and contrives the details of getting them to to Bethlehem uh, through using that historical survey. Um, so it, it's just the best way to understand the narratives, to think of them as answering questions that are not in the text, but that were questions during that historical period of their writing. All right, guys, I think that wraps up our two-part Christmas extravaganza. I had a blast doing it. I hope you guys did too. Yeah, this was great. I feel very ready for um, family Christmas conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Okay, so I'll end with a quote. This comes from an author named Tom Bicell, who wrote Apostle Travels Among the Tombs of the Twelve, which is a book I'm just starting. And he says, Even after I lost my religious faith, Christianity remained to me deeply and resonantly interesting, and I have long believed that anyone who does not find Christianity interesting has only his or her unfamiliarity with the topic to blame. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Thank you.